You're listening to the Europe Asia podcast, a podcast where we aim at deepening the mutual understanding and building stronger relations between Europe and Asia. Presented by the Brussels-based Europe Asia Center, we invite you to dive into the exploration of complexities and nuances that form the multi-layered relations between Europe and Asia. Through conversations with leading experts, we follow our firm belief of the need to facilitate connections, understanding and mutual trust. Welcome to the new episode of Europe Asia podcast. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest, Her Excellency Violeta Bulz, former European Commissioner for Transport and Mobility in period between 2014-2019 and the Deputy Prime Minister of Republic of Slovenia. A proper word for introduction would be the versatile leader born in southeastern city of Slovenia, Novo Mesto, a true global personality that through her work continues intertwining science, technology, innovation, economic participation and political empowerment. Through her personal and political journey, she went from being member of the national basketball team to business leader, IT engineer in the Silicon Valley, deputy prime minister and the European Commissioner for Transport and Mobility. In her political engagement, Her Excellency Bultz led the Ministry for Development, Strategic Projects and Cohesion, and as a commissioner left a significant footprint with her emphasis on digitalization, decarbonization and innovation within the transport and mobility sector. Taking her mission further, Ms. Bultz is today the curator of the movement Eco-Civilization and the G100 Global Chair for the Women World Economic Forum. Excellency Bulls, a warm welcome to Europe Asia podcast. So what was really your motivation for choosing computer science uh, and technology um, as your major, you know, as a really the first step um, in, in pursuing your, your, um, your academic career? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. And uh, secondly, this, the answer to this question will uh, tell you a lot about me and my character as well. This was certainly a subject I knew nothing about. Um, and um, keep in mind uh, that that was in the early 80s. Uh, so the topic was still new uh, and uh, just started to emerge as a study at uh, the university level. So for me, it sounded really intriguing. Uh, and I have to say, it was such a strong intuitive push uh, that uh, I felt that that's the right thing to do. Um, one of the quotes that, um, that I've found in one of your speeches actually was really alarming. Um, I mean, you were really trying to raise the alarm on, on, the, on the fact that compared to your times where, you know, the graduate ratio between men and women was actually 50-50%. Uh, um, and today, actually, the, the computer science, information technology um, is normally um, the percentage of, of um, female um, um, students actually is between 15 to 20 only. Um, so in response to the sharp drop in number of female students in technical universities, where do you really see um, you know, the trend going and also where do you see the response should be to that trend? Well, I think this question is uh, really important and especially today. Um, and um, you're right, when I enrolled at the Electrotechnical University and I I picked computer science as a major. And we were around 30% of women uh, in an overall quota, which was a huge number compared to a few percentages that were typical for electrotechnical uh, major. Uh, at the end of our studies, um, there were more than 50% of us who graduated women. Uh, a lot of our male colleagues uh, kind of decided to uh, to start their own uh, businesses. Uh, so they finished um, the university, left the universities earlier. But uh, today, today's picture is really alarming. Uh, I just checked the statistics and um, at the same university, uh, there is around 12.5% of, of female students today. And I can only guess the reasons uh, for such a low female in the role. Uh, maybe, as you mentioned before, uh, we experience similar statistics in uh, transport sector. And I can share some of the fun findings from transport and some of the reasons why uh, that we identified as the uh, obstacles for female uh, candidates to enter. Um, the portfolio. For example, one of them for sure was the lack of role models. Uh, 
And uh, I think that applies in the IT industry as well. Uh, and then lack of uh, public promotion of technical studies, especially computer science. Uh, it's uh, it's really interesting that uh, even when there is a promotion, it's mostly promoted by young uh, male, by young guys, uh, young students. And uh, of course, uh, young girls immediately think, oh, that's not for me. Um, there's maybe also a lack of encouragement uh, from within the families. In my case, um, I have to say it was my mom who um, almost gave up on me because I could not decide what to study. And then she brought me the information about these new interesting studies that started to uh, emerge at the technical level. So uh, she brought attention to computer science and uh, I'm really grateful for that. Um, so uh, another really important information that is also alarming from this field is that for example, from the startup community where young people actually get introduced to innovation and uh, to excitement of what they can do with the help of technology, how they can change for better the, the society and the conditions under which they live. And uh, for example, only in Europe, 93% um, uh, of all early investments in startups are made in the companies owned by men, by boys. You see, uh, it, it's it's a, a really uh, a challenging uh, topic. And uh, if we want to ever have a really sustainable, inclusive society, we have to have society at the table on all, on all levels. Uh, and currently there is 49% uh, of men and 51% of women in this world. So uh, I'm inviting everyone to, to seriously consider that. I don't want any favors, but just I want to get opportunity. And that is a very strong message. We need to start inviting the girls and uh, women to enroll or to be part of. And, you know, then we will prove ourselves that we always prove ourselves and those that they can't of course should not get an opportunity but the problem is that we don't even get a chance to enter and um, i mean i'm speaking from personal experiences because we had that situation at the commission level during my mandate and i remember uh, the first meeting uh, of college president yuger said we have currently 23 percent of uh, women on the top positions but by the end of our mandate, we really want to have over 40%. And, you know, we were just kind of looking at each other and said, well, that's a very ambitious goal. But uh, soon we realized that it's not a problem with uh, professionalism of women. It's not a problem with degree or, uh, or even experiences. The problem was that uh, they were not invited and they thought that all the jobs have been agreed upon already before they even enter. So once we started to provide uh, uh, invitations and then always pick the best out of uh, those available, uh, surprisingly, by the end of our mandate, we had 42% of women on the top posts within the commission. So I know it can be done and it's a lot to do with the political will, uh, a lot to do with just giving a chance, an opportunity and along with uh, those elements that I mentioned previously, uh, we can have a much better uh, balance in our society, which will bring much better balance in the solutions and in problem solving. Yes, uh, I, it's my experience as well that working with women, even in diplomacy, uh, is, is, is giving an, an extra dimension to the work. Because um, from from women colleagues, you they they look at problem solving sometimes from different angles, and and that is make making the discussion richer, and and more more open to finding solutions. So uh, it is my experience as well. So I'm glad to hear that from Violetta, at the highest level in the commission. But if that's exactly uh, the case. It's not that we are better or worse. Uh, we just have a different point of view. And once you bring these two different points of view, male and female point of view together, you get by far better inclusive solution than before. If you just address half of the population or if you have only half of the views uh, 
of the problem. There was an American scientist one day who said, Europe is Venus and America is Mars. I think maybe <laughs> we, could, we could make a similar uh, judgment on, on female and male. Yes. I can see where this comparison comes from. <laughs> comes from. Um, shortly after your service as a deputy prime minister of Slovenian government, you were already nominated for the post of European commissioner. Um, how did you actually personally experience this? I mean, big shift. Obviously, you have had a tremendous career before that nomination in telecommunications sector, both in Europe, both in the States. Um, you had also deep dive, you know, quite a strong deep dive in Slovenian and European politics. Um, were you ready for this change? I mean, it, it was a really big change. Um, absolutely, it was a big change, but I've done so many shifts in my life prior to that. Uh, you know, I changed the careers. I was an engineer uh, in Slovenia of computer science and I loved my profession. I loved my job that I had. Then I got this offer to move to United States and I, I picked it up as a really uh, great opportunity and uh, finished my master's work in Silicon Valley. But then I realized that um, the social framework, is, I just didn't recognize it as a good one to raise the family. So here we go after five years, I came back to Europe. Uh, so, and then worked in uh, telecom Slovenia, hold the top positions, uh, realized that I can do better maybe as an entrepreneur, worked uh, for 14 years as an entrepreneur, and then got really unsatisfied with the way how politics uh, was um, exercised in Slovenia. So I engaged with a group of friends, again, left a very prosperous business, I said, okay, let's go to politics and do something. And, you know, that vortex started when uh, we surprisingly, as a completely new party, took 36% of Slovenian votes. Uh, and um, then, again, never thought about European Post. Uh, I loved, all of a sudden, uh, I uh, realized what an important job it is to be a politician. And I was a minister for cohesion and development. And I honestly loved the job. I mean, even though I was only five weeks in a post, meanwhile, became deputy prime minister. And then our commissioner uh, to be uh, was rejected by the parliament and uh, I qualified uh, for, for uh, the next nomination. And everything felt so natural, to be honest with you. Uh, it's like I had to decide in five seconds. And I said, yes. And I didn't even know what I said yes to, but I kind of felt that that's the right thing to do. So I came to Brussels and I always felt welcomed. Uh, even though I, you know, I had to study, I had only four days uh, to prepare and we studied hard and I, every new element that I learned about European politics, I loved it more. Uh, so um, when I passed the hearing in the parliament, uh, I kind of felt like a fish in the water in a way. So felt kind of whole life was preparing me for that post. So uh, I tried to do it as responsibly as possible. And uh, I had to lean on what I was good at. Of course, I didn't know much about European politics. I knew very little about transport. But uh, soon I realized during this, the studies for, for the hearing already that there are incredible people within the commission with extensive knowledge and expertise. And uh, all they need from the commissioner is to lead, to, to, to kind of set the agenda and then just to, to bring everyone together that they de deliver on that agenda. Uh, so, um, you know, there were, I think there were a couple of maybe really crucial elements. First, uh, my awareness that I knew little about the sector uh, helped a lot. Um, and uh, so I used my capacity to uh, bring people together based on participatory modeling. Uh, we built immediately the common framework, like three goals, six uh, key uh, strategies, uh, five key values, and then just started to communicate that that's uh, the agenda for the next five years and exercise that agenda on every single portfolio we had. 
so basically I was building safe spaces uh, for all the members of my team and the ecosystem as a whole um, to, to dare to, to think, to dare to innovate, to dare to go beyond and dare to connect with people that they were not used to connecting. Like I brought together unions and, uh, and, and corporations and politicians. Uh, and we were brainstorming together. And at the end, this was extremely useful because that's how we learned about each other much faster than just reading or listening through media or through some um, lobbyists uh, about the opinions that we had. So this direct contact, um, at least for me, was uh, very encouraging. Um, and yes, as you mentioned before, a strong background in IT and telecommunications uh, helped me a lot because transport, transport was right at the verge of uh, transitioning into this more green, digital, people-focused, uh, mobility-as-a-service-focused portfolio. And uh, for me, with my background, that was something that I've lived for many years before uh, that so uh, we kind of we we were a really good team i i loved it and i enjoyed every single day yeah. so, uh, th there's sometimes a lot of criticism about the commission about big bureaucracy uh you know papers all over and when you entered the commission as a commissioner for transport or mobility uh, did you have the impression that you were entering the biggest bureaucracy of the world or were you uh, thinking, you know, I'm, I, I can make the difference here, it's, you know? Yeah, I never thought about uh, a big administration. I thought about these incredible people that were there, as I said, when I met them right in that first uh, couple of days uh, when we were getting ready for the hearing. Uh, commission has this really strong capacity in... Uh, knowledge and expertise. Um, so no, I, I felt immediately this as an opportunity. Uh, that's why it was so exciting. I was aware of not knowing much, but on the other hand, uh, you know, uh, I'm a system thinker. So I've been a system thinker basically all my career. And uh, I saw this huge system that just needed uh, to have a fresh push in few of these emerging fields, which is, as I said before, greenification, digitalization, and uh, services, people-focused. And when you add also the ambition, which I always had to, to lead globally, I always thought that Europe should uh, be more active on the global uh, scene. Uh, and, um, and, and then, of course, with all the uh, transport uh, proprietary uh, uh, characteristics like safety and security. Uh, yeah, that was that was an, a great field to, to, to get engaged in. And I still think that European administration compared to like country level administration is still small. It might look big, but it is small if you consider how much work and how many member states has to coordinate. Um, but I'm not saying it should be bigger. I'm just saying that it's an efficient tool uh, that uh, could be used by far more by member states. Uh, many times we had to push uh, member states to get interested in particular topics, to engage, to, uh, to actually want to deliver a more ambitious agendas. Uh, and that is the purpose as well, of course. Uh, and with all the coordination, which I always love to do, uh, I could really use my skills that I had before. The challenge were, uh, for me was just to understand how strong the influence of member states is. I had to, uh, it took me maybe a year to, to, to understand how to manage uh, the different influences the member states were exercising. Um, but, uh, after we started really building the ecosystems and bringing all stakeholders on board on co-decision, um, that was not an issue anymore, actually. I have another question on, uh, as a commissioner in the commission, big administration, uh, they, they say sometimes that big administrations, they, they don't, don't need politicians. They, they can run their own life. You know, that's what they say, administration, they, they have the experience, they have the expertise. And to what extent was it difficult for you to come in and say, I have my own ideas and I want this 
I want to push these ideas. Did you see resistance from the administration? Well, first of all, uh, President Juncker was very clear that the commission he will be leading, he, will, uh, he was leading, uh, was a political commission. So he expected from uh, commissioners to have a political view and political stand, of course, coordinated uh, uh, in coordination with member states. And that I took very seriously. So I had a lot of consultancies with member states for everything that uh, we we did, but as well with as, uh, with unions and with the industry and NGOs. Um, in what extent that is important? I think it's very important because um, you every five years elections. Um, like on every four years on a, a country level, uh, bring fresh wind. They uh, they bring some new points of view. And I understand, I, I'm very much in uh, support of that. Um, on the other hand, uh, commission also has this uh, strategy of uh, continuity, uh, which is sort of a behavior that it's nowhere written, but it's really well exercised. So we do take a very good look at what uh, needs to be carried forward, which in most cases, all the files that the previous commissioners uh, started, you try to complete. So that gives you a sense of stability. But of course, uh, bringing fresh methods, uh, I've heard many times, commissioner, this is not the way we do things here. <laughs> uh, and uh, I mean, I said, look, I don't know how it's supposed to be done. Uh, so let's try to do it my way because that's how I know. Uh, so, uh, but, but they saw very, uh, in an early, uh, early stage of the mandate that uh, I, I was not bringing something so dramatically new. I was just bringing this participation, this acknowledgement of, of stakeholders and acknowledgement of ecosystem logic and horizontal integration of different uh, content. And they saw that this is bringing positive results, that the, that the countries and stakeholders are responding to this positively. Uh, so um, they bought into it. There were a couple of things, like I had a rule, um, if I'm the only woman, I'm not uh, speaking at a conference. That was one of the rules that I exercised really at the beginning. And they said, oh, but there is no women in the portfolio. I said, well, you better, put a bit more effort and find them. So uh, all of a sudden that became a normal practice. Nobody even questioned that anymore. Uh, so then uh, I said, well, why are so little few women? I mean, at that time they were just uh, like 2% of seafarers, 3% of train drivers, 4% of pilots. There were really hardly any women around. So we started in early uh, stage, we started with this conference of women in transport. Uh, and it grew every year, I mean, from, let's say, maybe 20 the first year um, to the uh, then to over 160 at the end. And all of a sudden, we realized that not only women are coming, that there are more and more men. And we started to address not only women's issue, but inclusion issues. Uh, and we introduced ambassadors of uh, equal opportunity for all uh, types of people, for minorities, for um, you know, people with different sexual orientation, with uh, even the colored people, they had some problems, and we brought this issue to uh, to, to broader attention and awareness. So um, yeah, I mean, you you realize that when you touch an issue that matters to people, things started to enroll. Uh, if you touch something that uh, nobody picks up, that just means, well, maybe it's not the right timing. <laughs> so better, you better wait with that. I think that being a politician is an incredible job, uh, but many politicians are just not trained for modern times. Very interesting insights. I mean, one of the questions that I actually wanted to ask, and I think you've already answered all the way without me even trying to really pose, was particularly on this, you know, innovative insights that you I mean, you as a female leader have really brought to such an 
you know, um, actually not only uh, exercising the idea, but actually really implementing it into a system. Mm. I want to follow up a little bit on one of the things that you mentioned earlier, obviously the, you know, the big digital transition of, you know, the, the transport and mobility um, sector. Um, and, you know, there is a big momentum around building um, the dialogue around European mobility. And, you know, we are daily, uh, we are daily almost um, listening to dialogue of uh, what will truly make the sustainable shift, um, you know, and obviously we need both the technological and or specific information technology to lead this transition. Um, you know, you yourself as a scientist educated in computer sciences, I really still remain stuck with um, one of your theses that you've stated in our recent webinar that we hosted on the topic of EU strategic autonomy, um, where I will quote you actually, you say, we should never forget that technology is only a tool and not the goal. Um, we can actually give humanity another chance and evolve together with our knowledge. Um, the proper tools that will keep us to thrive towards the next century. Um, could you maybe reflect a bit more on that? Um, I mean, on that, I would say, very, very powerful statement. Well, that's something I live by. Um, you can see that there is a tendency of a high-tech um, sector. I mean, it's a bit uh, maybe uh, too much to say, but it feels like they want to take over the world. Uh, meaning putting technology as the primary goal, um, focusing on technology, not so much on what is needed in order to evolve uh, better living on this planet Earth. Um, and I'm a great fan of technology uh, and I'm an early adapter as well. But uh, I do question uh, what really serves the humanity. Uh, and uh, for example, Right now, we can see that we have this judicialization pressure everywhere. Yeah. And rightly so, it's a more efficient way of doing things. Um, you know, you can uh, process much more data than the human individual humans can. Uh, so it's very attractive. Do more, introduce more gadgets. But uh, to be honest with you, uh, I've had now several discussions with my colleagues uh, uh, about how do we feel when we access, when we uh, interact and get into a relationship with these uh, tools? Personally, I feel more and more like a, an administrator to all these digital service providers. I'm their secretary, I'm their uh, you know, administrative assistant. I have to fill, it, fill in all the information. I'm the one who has to search and find the, in their, their cloud and their, on their uh, app, uh, everything that they're offering. And is that the future? I'm gonna be become a slave of a high tech? No, I think we have this uh, very important um, mission actually to make sure that uh, e even though that they're digital, they still stay tools and that they help us to have more free time, not in the evening to, to, to type in all kinds of information in order to uh, even uh, do the uh, obligatory services to the state, for example. Everything we have to do by ourselves. And as much as in the moment it sounds attractive, it's actually uh, changing the relationship uh, in the fundamental um, relationship in the society. So I'm very much in favor of mobility as a service, for example. Move on. I'm even looking forward to the uh, augmented reality to become uh, more present or virtual reality uh, and more digitalization. I'm not uh, against that, but uh, is that really what the focus should be? Or is it a focus of better uh, well-being of people, societies, of our more quality life, so that if we use technology, for example, to uh, use less water, to, to have uh, cheaper energy, to um, really uh, perform our day-to-day -day lives faster, to have a smarter solutions for mobility, to have a, like say one ten, uh, or 10 minute cities or 15 minute cities where uh, we really can uh, redesign everything with the help of technology and additional data, uh, redesign the way how we live to support a higher quality of life. I don't feel that today um, the drivers of technological development even care about that. 
So there is really a need for, for a more human-centric approach. Absolutely. And, yeah. and regulators have to play a role here. I mean, who else will? There is no global regulator on high-tech. So that's why we have uh, examples of a portal-based services that you know, just come, uh, exercise the service on a local level. They don't pay taxes. They use the infrastructure. They never contribute uh, towards anything. Uh, and they, they generate enormous profits. You know, so, uh, and this is what technology uh, offers. And we, we had to deal with Uber. We had to deal with uh, Airbnb in, in the past. But uh, this uh, uh, portal-based uh, services are popping up everywhere in all uh, type of um, portfolios. So if the regulators don't play a, a decisive role and ensure that profits are, uh, I mean, the taxes are paid where profits are made or revenues are made, uh, then um, it's going to be a very strange disparity in this world. And the local levels will get poorer and poorer, and the middle class will disappear more and more. And you can only use your imagination how the world will look like. Maybe we are in the middle of a big bang, the technological and revolution, and that the regulator is, is still in, in, in front of all this with, with a certain awe and, and they are behind it. So uh, it's maybe a natural. So that's why, you know, the European Commission is certainly uh, should be at the vanguard, so at the, at the front of regulation. And you see that, you know, with the Green mm -hmm. Deal, for instance, mm -hmm. the Green Deal, Europe is, is ahead. You see that also, I, it's a, a, an issue I know very well is on plastics, you know, mm -hmm. the whole discussion on, on plastics and pollution. So, uh, yeah, I think it's not easy. You know, th this Big Bang is not something in, in, in one, one year. It's probably spread over 10 years. And 30 years, more. I would 30. even challenge. Yeah. 30 yeah. years time is the right time. It's a depreciation cycle of, let's say, a real... Uh, um, a uh, train composition or a plane or a ship and uh, we need to keep that perspective in mind and even when I was working with companies the change can happen in the five to seven years local communities about maybe 12 to 15 years if you're really focused but when you deal with big systems I would give it 25 to 30 years um, but there is an interesting uh, side to it when you when you pointed out the plastic stra uh, strategy and uh, the results that we were able to achieve. We were just about starting to um, to sort of um, deliver on that when COVID happened. And um, I mean, somebody has to say it, but uh, everything related to m managing the COVID crisis went against the plastic uh, strategy. You know, we generated so much waste. It was unbelievable. You see it everywhere. You know, you see, you see it in the forest, you see it in the, in, in, in the rivers, it, see it on the street, you know, it's, it's a serious issue. So this was a test for humanity. So will every crisis, uh, will we in every crisis just give up on everything that we've achieved so far? And plastic is not the only thing. I mean, the same happened to our democracy. Uh, and um, we, I hope that this test bed uh, will teach us uh, a hard lesson and we will become aware uh, of uh, our reactions in, in the case of fear and we will prepare ourselves better for a resilience uh, in such uh, situations for the future. One of the keywords now you you raised was actually also I mean the, the notion of democracies and to go back and I have another quote that you've um, I've, I've noted down from you and which which was also again focused on this human centricity, uh, which was the cornerstone of digital autonomy must be trust built first and foremost through personal so people to people communication and relationship, um, so. If we say, if we truly want to achieve sustainable transition of our societies, yeah, as you said, a lot has been, for example, achieved, in, you know, in the domain of plastic. Um, we need to, in a way, really try to reestablish the basis. And that is a dialogue between individuals, 
nations, cultures, and another interesting term that you normally like to use, civilizations. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, we, as humans, no matter how it looks uh, right now, uh, we are raising our level of awareness and consciousness. Uh, and I have to say that TCPIP-based network, this network logic contributed largely to it. If we just remember, you know, TCPIP um, was for the first time defined and implemented in the 60s. Uh, so uh, it took us only 60 years to uh, really even forget about it because we're taking it for granted. Um, but it brought this incredible power of engagement on a global scale. And this even brought us the capacity to communicate peer to peer. Uh, so that process keeps going regardless of uh, maybe contemporary situations. And um, that's how the world is getting closer and closer again. Um, and uh, it's, uh, we are becoming aware that uh, the, the challenges that we thought in the past were maybe just local, they're actually global. Uh, so this global awareness and global consciousness is evolving now. Uh, and uh, I, you know, it's calling for our attention. It's calling for a global uh, management. It's calling for global regulation. It's calling for global engagement. And if I just point out two that are very obvious now, uh, and we are all sort of um, engaging uh, around these two topics. Uh, one is climate change and the other one is pandemic. Uh, and we are learning even more how to uh, build together the research and uh, development networks, research and innovation networks, um, you know, knowledge-based uh, knowledge network. All this is now emerging with a high speed. And in one hand, when uh, the high-tech giants are pushing the whole society towards so-called so transhumanization uh, model. On the other hand, these eco-civilization concepts um, are emerging everywhere. I was so surprised when I started to uh, seriously engage with this topic and uh, conduct different you know, sessions and meetings and, and, and uh, symposiums. And now we are, you know, we are in 26 uh, countries and uh, connecting uh, our uh, capacities with so many other networks that are all trying to find uh, the way to, 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 to for a more balanced world, for a better distribution of value creation. Uh, and this is really uh, something that gives me hope and brings light uh, to all these current, very tense relationships. But most of the challenges that we're facing now uh, that are bringing more fear and more uh, uh, sort of unpredictability to our lives are from the old model. Uh, the new models are by far more uh, building um, on trust, on transparency, and just doing the right thing. Yeah, very powerful. And 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 actually, I uh, I have from the former U.S. Vice President Al Gore actually um, said in one of his speeches that you know political will is in itself. A, renewable energy and I, I and, and I think it is in a way this renewable energy that we need to to find for for um, mm. for, for you know development of this new consensus a new model um how it's did true, but, uh, yeah. uh, Dave, I, I, if I just can jump uh, in with one more important element because I'm not sure if we're gonna be back to this topic uh, yes political will yes technologies yes engagements but there is one thing that uh, is still uh, still needs to be tapped into also by the uh, European Commission uh, is um, organizational structures. Uh, we need innovation in structures because if you bring all these profound uh, concepts like Green Deal, for example, and you push them uh, within the old structures, you ain't gonna deliver the results that you want because it is new, it requires different levels of engagement. It requires different uh, processes and different uh, organizational structures. And uh, if you don't provide them, the results will be by far less than uh, what they could be if you put that into equation as well. 
Yeah, I, I think this is very similar also in big corporations. They have to reinvent themselves all the time. And also in the way they approach the, the business as such. So I can imagine that in, in the commission or in any big administration, they have to streamline their organization in order to, to be in a position to fulfill the mandate. Mm. Yeah. And if the mandate is, is, is absolutely revolutionary in terms of Green Deal, I can imagine that they, they have to look at, at the system. Yeah, but at the same time, look, uh, European Union as a concept was incredibly advanced when it emerged. Yeah, not only because it has this engaging vision, no war ever again on the territory of European Union of, uh, or even European continent, uh, which by itself is big enough. But at the same time, it introduced a completely new structures within which member states and nations started to engage. So uh, there is there was a parliament, the uh, directly elected representatives. There was a council where all member states prime ministers who are also elected uh, were present uh, were uh, members or on if you want on portfolio levels the ministers. But then it was this third structure commission which is in charge of preparing everything, promoting, delivering, and being uh, and playing the role of a regulator. So we have this trinity structure that is unique and very unique globally. And uh, three very strong, uh, strong, uh, strong organizations that are working for the benefits of European citizens. Uh, and uh, instead of trying to now squeeze this together in some sort of more autocratic and uh, hierarchical structure, I would encourage to look around and see uh, the power of networks and how much you can do if you actually flatten this even more, if you can bring even higher level of participation, participation what is now being implied by many European-based citizens organizations which they are all calling for a higher level of participation to introduce participatory modeling, to introduce more elements of street democracy, to introduce more elements of direct democracy. We don't need to have it everywhere, but at least we need to start innovating on the overall structures of the way how we engage, how we decide and how we deliver. Uh, and here, I, that's where I'm, I'm, I see a huge opportunity for uh, the EU to continue to lead the democratic and open and inclusive world. I don't see any other continent to have that capacity at this point. So what you're saying is that the, what they say sometimes, the democratic deficit is it's not unique for Europe because each country has a democratic deficit. Exactly. Uh, and, 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 and what you're saying is that probably Europe could lead the way in, in other forms of uh, particip participation in, in the whole process of uh, coming to decisions uh, which, which are important for not one country but for a group of countries. Exactly. Exactly. And we, we have this unique opportunity to continue to lead, not to fall into a trap of trying to deny and, and, and narrow down the democracy, but give it even more wings. Um, especially in when the times are hard, it's, uh, it's sort of intuitive that we try to, uh, uh, to hold ourselves tighter because that's the way how we react to fear. But if you want to overcome, overcome the crisis, you got to open up, you got to engage, you have to really spread the, the, um, the field of active participation to get as many ideas as possible and to overcome the challenge as quick as possible. We're trusting people not to fight against people. And that's what we see today. For some reason, the leaders all of a sudden don't trust people anymore. All of a sudden, uh, you know, they take uh, people who have a different voice for their enemies. I mean, where did we get, my dear friends? Uh, and that's where Europe has a unique opportunity to bring this back to the table. Um, and to, to raise voice for uh, the next step of democracy.
And and to shift a little bit from from that topic, um, I mean, I think one of the really key points also now you were talking about, you know, opening up, kind of spreading the wings. Wings is also part of the logo of the eco civilization. And um, how did I mean this? This work of yours, I mean, where, where does the notion of eco-civilization really come from for you personally? I mean, I, I think throughout the conversation we can trace it back already to, you know, years ago when you've kind of already developed this idea of, of you know, the global dimension. Um, and it, something that is very interesting with, with the work you do with eco-civilization is also this creation of the new paradigm. Yeah, You're, you're really extensively working really on, on this transition. Would you be able to share kind of this, you know, underlying foundation that is really, um, you know, supporting pillar of, of, of this great visionism, actually? Well, certainly developed over time. As I mentioned before, uh, I've always been a system thinker. I was really, and I still am passionate about systems. Systems interest me. I, I, I observe them. I try to feel them. I know that they are like life organisms. They have their own behaviors. They have their own, uh, you know, emotions. Uh, and uh, they, they do react um, the way how people and all living creatures react. So uh, throughout my career, uh, that was a, a big uh, puzzle for me, how to integrate lower level systems with the higher level systems and still allow uh, this individual transparency to take place and to, to not to lose authenticity of the lower layers uh, or, or those that are integrated in the bigger systems. Uh, so uh, that probably brought me to this International System Science Society. And um, couple, uh, in 2012, um, while we were getting ready for this global conference in Vietnam on uh, system science, for the first time, I got introduced to the concept of even civilizational cycles. Before, I was more looking at uh, countries, um, corporations, companies, uh, local communities, maybe state and regions, but not uh, civilization. Uh, so that really attracted a lot of my attention. And uh, from that point on, uh, I started to really observe what uh, is going on, on, on currently in the world. Do we have more civilizations like uh, many historical books were telling us about the past? Or do we have one civilization currently? And you soon realize that we are still living in the multi-civilizational uh, structures today. Uh, and uh, then through the post as a commissioner, I could really see these differences between Western civilizations and some other uh, coexisting civilization on this planet Earth. Uh, and I started to observe uh, Western civilizations through the leverage points that we defined uh, at that time as part of the conference. And uh, to my surprise, I started to realize that in a way, we have some similarities with some old civilizations, uh, especially with their last stages of existence. Um, I could see a lot of decadency in Western civilization. I could see lack of inspiration after the, in the post-imperialistic uh, era. Uh, uh, you know, somehow uh, the world did not acknowledge our superiority anymore, uh, and we could not find uh, a new element uh, on which we would base at least uh, our sort of recognition. So that kind of surprised me. Uh, so I started looking uh, for what could be the big advantages of uh, Western civilization, especially if you include that, of course, in Western and also the United States and all formal uh, British Empire uh, regions. And, and you see that uh, one thing that we are lacking is uh, this systemic development of human beings. Uh, we kind of lost touch with uh, emotions, with uh, spirituality, uh, with uh, energy fields around us, um, uh, with, even with social uh, uh, level, uh, social interactions, uh, and taking care of those uh, within the community that uh, need uh, need support and help. We were getting more and more distant uh, from the core values of humanity. And um, so I said, okay, so does that mean 
that we are following the destiny of so many other civilizations before because this planet Earth have seen many and they were extremely successful, much bigger than Western civilization is today. Uh, but they still, you know, fall and they disappeared. And they, they maybe exist in some fairy tales, but some of them, they don't even get there yet to that point. So um, I said, I started to propose uh, through the discussions to my friends. I said, okay, either we're gonna you know, go down or do we have a capacity in this modern world when so much information is available to reinvent ourselves? Uh, to not to, to, to go into the uh, complete entropy, but uh, to reinvent through a new wills of uh, value creation and uh, maybe give ourselves a new chance, a new spin in the uh, development of, uh, of the world. Um, so I felt that this is a fair proposition. So that's the basis uh, for eco-civilization. Uh, but at the same time, I realized that quite likely the next civilization will not be continental anymore, but it will evolve on the level of a global consciousness. And then I got across of this incredible prophecy uh, that uh, says that uh, at the beginning of the time, there were four different races, um, red, black, yellow, and white. And they all got their stone tablets and they went to different parts of the world and uh, to develop, to evolve, to experience. One with the, uh, with, the prof, uh, with the characteristic of the wind, the other on earth, the third one water, and the fourth one, the white one with fire. And the world will come back to balance when all these four uh, different races will come together, sit in the circle, shake hands, and decide jointly on the future of the world. It's a very powerful prophecy uh, with a lot of more details. I simplified it, but it's really inspiring. Uh, and uh, it's uh, uh, the, the fact that never in the history this has taken place. Uh, it gives an enormous uh, sort of uh, brings light uh, to the future that there is still a chance uh, that we do bring the world into better balance. So what we're doing now within eco-civilization, we're building knowledge as universal good, trying to share and see where we are the different parts of the world and how we can bring and create some points or leverage points together uh, based on which uh, we can act together, we can um, deliver value in our local environments while uh, keeping the identification or authenticity of a local uh, places alive uh, within a global agenda. And we follow those three rules that I shared with you before, uh, full transparency, 100% transparency, trust, and do what it feels right. And I'm quite amazed what is emerging. <laughs> and last year we were, the project was recognized as one of the top 100 projects for a better world by uh, women, uh, Global Women uh, Association. And uh, um, became one of the global 100 chairs, and now we are expanding. And it's really fantastic to see how pretty much in every country uh, you can find the common denominators of the global philosophy and global engagement, and of course, a lot of local authentic activities that just help us to diversify um, our thoughts and to be able to innovate, because innovation really needs this diversification, and that's where new things emerge. Now I'm holding space and, you know, observing the emergence and try to act upon. Yeah, we, um, you mentioned old civilizations and uh, we haven't actually mentioned in our discussion uh, about China. Uh, and we see indeed that uh, China is, 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 of course, is seen sometimes as a threat but uh, I see it more and more as uh, an opportunity, you know, for the world. You know, uh, mm. that's probably not uh, the usual way of looking at China. Uh, but you mentioned uh, about e ecology, you know, the environment. I think uh, the president uh, he uh, launched the idea of an ecological civilization. Yeah? 
So maybe these are the beginning of 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 the implementation of your personal thoughts, you know. Well, I think we come from the same source because uh, in 2012, uh, you know, there was a strong uh, sort of a push of uh, Chinese uh, part of international system science organization towards this ecological framework, uh, even though they were focusing more on cities, smart cities and technologies. Then we have another one which went to California and they still exist. It's more, they're more dedicated to science and research. Uh, they call uh, Eco-Civil, it's their movement. And uh, what I brought back to Europe and now kind of spreading around the world is Eco-Civilization more from the engaging point of view, from building the societies and trying to see what kind of frameworks we need in order to uh, to start living that. But when you mention China, this it's really interesting. If, uh, you know, uh, view back because uh, one of the biggest dynasties were, was Han Dynasty in China, which existed at the same time as Roman Empire, and these two big uh, we call them civilizations coexisted with uh, with a very little awareness of each other, uh, even though that when Chinese uh, ruler learned that there might be another big empire somewhere in the world and sent his personal researcher to find this, uh, this empire, uh, that person actually got to the, to the, uh, uh, to the, um, uh, to the sea. Uh, and uh, that was the foundation of the Silk Road. When, uh, he returned, he reported that indeed there was an empire, but it's really far. But the map of the road that he took uh, was the, the basically the foundation of a Silk Road from uh, China to Mediterranean Sea. A lot of interesting synergies, actually, and I mean, historically looking back um, so much, um, so much, you know, <laughs> there to, to kind of build on. One of the parts that we are trying to really include actually in diversity of opinions and are also questions from uh, we call them future leaders because of the project we're working with the Europe Asia Center. Um, so we have actually three questions for you uh, from the European future leaders and three questions from the fu future leaders from China. So maybe I just start with the first question which is coming from Europe. Um, which is um, the discourse, this discourse of uh, circular economy action plan places really considerable um, emphasis on the economic growth and competitiveness and really seems to be, you know, technology, technology centered. Um, to what direction should circular economy actually lead us to promote both human well-being and ecosystem health and address this um, social ecological challenges in the 21st century? Mm. Well, that's a really good question. Um, first of all, um, I, I do have to say the circular economy cannot uh, evolve only on the back of technologies. Uh, I think that you can expect that uh, answer from me. Uh, circular economy, uh, the way I see it, um, and actually circular society altogether, is about attitude first. And attitude is a choice. And we all have a choice to live in a more responsible and a circular way. Uh, so it's about behavior, habits. It starts with the way we think. So with the rethinking our life, uh, with the way how we design. So redesigning uh, our uh, buildings, our cities, uh, our uh, services. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's a, a very powerful tool that we, all, we humans have. And uh, more and more we are learning from also from nature and we see that nature already has answers to so many challenges that we uh, know of. For example, there are uh, many uh, plants uh, that already know how to minimize the, minimize the use of uh, energy uh, to, to use the daylight, to use the weather conditions and either close their, their, their leaves or uh, their flowers and the way how they uh, behave actually in, in the forest or on, on the meadow. So uh, we are learning now. Finally, we are becoming perceptive for the uh, lectures from the mother nature. So, um, and, and 
another powerful tool that we don't use often is collective dreaming. We, you know, because human can deliver, we humans can deliver everything we dream of, or we can articulate uh, everything we can articulate, we can actually deliver. It's just a question of resources, but uh, we know how to decompose the challenge and then deliver it step by step. Uh, and here again is uh, a big question. Uh, can we avoid this temptation to minimize humans um, to the level of computer language? Uh, with technology, we need to be very careful that we don't kill the essence of humanity, which is uh, spontaneously, a spontaneous, um, intuitive, uh, innovative, uh, uh, out-of-the-box thinking, and collective engagement. And again, I would say attitude is a choice. Uh, so we have to start helping each other here to dare to make a change. And circular economy as a concept is, it's a great model that just shows us that even theoretically this can be done. And now in order to practically deliver uh, on uh, rethink, redesign, reuse, reduce, uh, repair. Um, so uh, we need to really support each other, that we are not afraid, uh, that we actually do a system uh, point of view. And here again, um, many times uh, in a, strategies and action plans on a country level, uh, we're lacking this system view. Uh, for example, you push for electrification of cars, but you don't have electricity to, uh, to run it, or you don't have infrastructure uh, to access uh, this uh, electricity. And, and of course, then the whole thing uh, confuses people and they say, ah, that is not the right way to go. Um, so, uh, <laughs> Lessons are there to learn from, uh, and uh, uh, as soon as, as long as we're going to think together and exchange views, the circular economy will deliver a tremendous effect. Uh, and now, especially with um, um, with the new trends that are complementary to circular economy, um, uh, which is like. Uh, uh, taking care of land and to refresh the land itself, uh, to, to bring, uh, to fertilize it again, and to really set the conditions uh, that the circular economy can take place. Um, so those are powerful concepts, and I believe in them, and uh, eco-civilization certainly stands for them. Um, and I think that that is a great hope uh, for, for the future. Okay, thank you for a really, I mean, as you said yourself, a very challenging question and a very comprehensive answer to it. Um, we have a question both from Europe and from uh, from China, actually focusing on, on the topic we touched a little bit earlier, which was, you know, the female representation. Um, according to the knowledge, um, global uh, gender knowledge gap, um, um, significant disparities exist both across and within various geographies in the pace of closing the gender gaps. Um, how will the eco-civilization with shared consciousness provide a solution to this challenge? And to make it a little bit more applied also to the transport um, sector, um, is there, um, yeah, do the top position represent um, um, for female unique needs and interests more comprehensively mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the transport uh, sector? Um, will the working environment become even more inclusive and harmonious? Mm. First of all, we don't need uh, to wait for civilization to take place to, to act on this topic. Uh, so I certainly invite uh, everyone to just uh, see the true value for the engagement of the entire society in a process of value creation uh, or any kind of social innovation. Because once you have the entire society at the table, you get the comprehensive solutions that have a sustainable future. And they, you, I mean, it's a math. So if you have 100% uh, of people engaged uh, versus 50% of people engaged, you, you know, you, everybody can guess uh, when you are more successful. Uh, so I would say again that that could be achieved uh, with a very conscious uh, political act, uh, inviting sincerely 
the privileged groups, and at this point, women are still in this privileged group, uh, to engage, to ensure equal pay, to invite them to come to the table, to offer a fair, transparent conditions, to enroll in education, to apply for jobs, to create physical uh, conditions for that. For example, when we did analysis of transport, we realized that uh, one of the biggest obstacles for women uh, truck drivers uh, was lack of, um, of uh, facilities for women. There were no uh, bathrooms for women and they didn't want to share them with men. I mean, such it's such a basic uh, necessity or another very inspiring uh, example was when uh, one HR was uh, uh, asked to analyze why in a certain uh, company they cannot get women on board. They have only men. It was a logistic company. And they went and inspect the premises and they found them very unattractive. So what they did, they called, uh, they repainted uh, the whole uh, building. Uh, they uh, put really efforts to create a nice environment and women started to come. But you guess what? Not only women. Uh, after women joined, a lot of young people started to join, which they could not attract before. So you see, we're doing in a we're influencing yeah. each other in a positive way. For example, another really inspiring uh, uh, example is uh, the drivers. Um, one company, I'm not going to name it, uh, but one company started to employ female drivers, and they asked them why, and they said, "Well, there are very, very obvious reasons. First of all, they uh, take care of the truck better than men." So we have less uh, expenses for repair um, of the trucks. They, they, they drive more consistently, so they use less petrol. Uh, thirdly, uh, they are more careful drivers, so they don't have accidents. And uh, fourth, uh, but least but not uh, last but not least reason is that when they come to the customer, uh, they talk to them and they bring valuable information back. Once this was announced, Guess what? Male drivers started to change their behavior. So it was a positive impact. So uh, after a while, this was no longer an advantage of women, women, but it was a core competence of the company. Very, very interesting. And actually, it leads also to, to my last question from our future leaders, which is um, civil participation as, as an integral part of the EU's democracy and le legitimacy. Um, to bring more citizens, in particular the young youth group, on board, what should be done on the top EU level, state and local level? Again, a very big question. But um, first of all, I would try to not to separate these groups and set different councils for separate groups, but just make sure that they are all part of a big melting pot. Um, to really ensure cross-generational engagements, um, horizontal engagements, different portfolios, uh, because that's what makes space attractive. Uh, that's what creates diversity that then leads to innovation and to unique points of view uh, of the world. You know, we are constantly creating these holograms of our life. And if you want to lead the world, you have to be able to constantly change these holograms and uh, find a new ways forward, uh, basically building on the capacity of the old and experiences uh, of the old. So uh, just be honest, be inclusive, be open, and uh, not try to, how should I say, patronize anybody, but give everyone a chance. Thank you very much for those very wise words. I give everyone a chance. And I think creating opportunity is sometimes better than regulating. So uh, those are very wise words. And I um, think we come at the end of yes, our thank you podcast. so much. So yes, we come to an end to, of another episode. And we would really like to thank you once again, um, dear Violetta. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for the opportunity and holding space for this conversation to take place. We Thank all you. created this energy field within which, you know, interesting things emerge. So thank you very much for Thank that. you. Thank you. Thank you.